Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast, brought to you by the team behind BikeRadar.com, Cycling Plus and MBUK magazines. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe. And if you can do so, leave us a rating on your podcast provider of choice. It really helps us reach other cyclists like you. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Bike Radar Podcast. My name is Simon von Bromley and today I am joined by Ashley Quinlan and Liam Carhill. How are we doing, chaps? Liam, how are you and what have you been up to recently? I'm great. I've been racing my cyclocross bike for the first time in so long and I am pleased to say that my cyclocross bike still has a functioning rear derailleur hanger because about half the field in my last race, basically theirs decided to not be attached to the bike anymore. And that was quite catastrophic for them. Oh, well, we should call you Liam Neese from now on. Oh. <laughs> did you Stop come half, halfway up the starting field, did you? That's how you finished. I started in something like 80th position. So that's why you didn't win. Oh. And then I got, so one of my teammates, who I hadn't met before, because it's quite <laughs> close to the new season, he lapped me. <laughs> he lapped me and that was the first time I'd met him and he didn't say hello and quite frankly it's selfish well call him out on the podcast these, eh? these juniors with decent form fitness, and fitness eh? and skill I hate very it very unfair how are you Ash? yeah very well thank you um, myself I've been I've been really busy testing recently I've done lots of uh, bib tight testing lots of waterproof uh, testing both of those tests you'll find on bikeradar.com very soon so yeah, uh, very productive in the world of uh, bike radar and work and um, just getting some miles on the bike as well. And now starting to rank, rack, ramp them up for uh, 2024. Anyway, it's been a big year in cycling tech, of course, but we're here to discuss some of our personal highlights from the year just gone. And that's it, really. We're just going to give you a flavour of what we thought were the most interesting tech stories on bikeradar.com uh, this year, particularly on road and gravel. And there will be a mountain bike one coming another day separately. But if you're here for Road and Gravel, let's just kick off straight into it. Liam, what was your personal tech highlight for Road for 2023? I think it has to be the ridiculousness of the scope at Moss Hub. Now, this, if you don't know, is a hub-based remote tyre inflation system. And if you think that sounds stupid... Yes, it is. <laughs> because basically, this came, we, we saw this, you know, kind of appear before Paris-Roubaix, as it always does, or always. It's done this it kind for, of tech. This, this does, kind yeah. of tech. And, and this appeared before Roubaix, and people were going, oh, is it going to influence the race? Now, let's step back. This is an incredibly niche product. Like, you, you've got a very, very small cohort of people that can use this effectively. You've also got an even smaller cohort of those people that can afford it. It's, I think, €3,998. Am I right in saying that you? it kind of comes built into the wheel as well, doesn't it? It's not something that you can... You, it's not like an aftermarket part that yeah. you could attach to any hub. You have to buy the scope wheel set. Yeah. Obviously, now, for the teams who ran it at Paris-Roubaix, you know, obviously, they have sponsorship arrangements. I believe that, say, Jumbo, Jumbo Visma used it. Jumbo and, Visma used a different a different branded oh, system. And, and so, Christophe Laporte, actually, <laughs> he rode to 10th place, I think, with the system attached to his bike for a bit before he punctured and then had yeah. to 
get a wheelchair. Okay, so it was Team DSM. It was who DSM, used, right. and there are two riders that were meant to infiltrate the brake and I don't know, send back pacing notes or something like F1. Uh, both of them missed the brake. Or Neil's Ekhoff nearly got there and we were all willing him on because we'd have something to write about on Monday morning. Do I mean, you know, we, we've kind of we, we've been a little bit uh, sceptical there, I should say. I, you know, I think in terms of for Paris-Roubaix, you know, there are obvious performance advantages to being able to change with sure. tire pressure, right? Yeah. You know, it, it, this is a tech highlight because, of, you know, it was it was innovative, it was interesting. Mm. But I think, yeah, like like you say, it's kind of the why why do you think the kind of application beyond a race like such as Paris Bay would be kind of limited for this kind of tech? Because I don't think people's riding necessarily takes in such stark uh terrain differences. Now this might be On the road. On the road. This may be applicable to your riding if you are a gravel rider that does a big old tarmac section and we're talking miles to get to your nice gravel trails, and then you can, on the fly, decrease your tyre pressure before you get to the gravel and enjoy a seamless transition onto your favoured terrain. But for the majority of us, I I just can't see an application. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that they have marketed this as a road product, When and I actually think this seems like a much more useful thing for gravel. I mean, Ash, do you have any thoughts on it? I think think for me, the the, the biggest prohibitive thing, and of course we're talking about something that is, if not a prototype, it's new technology, used here at least, uh, is the prohibitive cost. You know, it's a third of a cost of, say, a hyperbike, essentially. And and I just think, I think that's going to price it out of everyone's range anyway. And I don't think I think that the, the product could potentially be slightly ahead of its time in the sense that, you know, it, it, it's, it's the devil's job trying to not convince people that you can run lower pressures or, you know, the benefits of running lower pressures or, or you know, those who want to stick with their higher pressures, for example. That it's the devil's job trying to convince people that you can get benefits from running a certain setup, whether it's lower pressures or higher pressures. So then to offer the opportunity to change your pressures on the move seems to be... Like it, it seems to jump the gun a little sure, bit. Sure, you need foot. to know what you're going to go from A to B and then back to B, and you you kind of do, you kind of do, yeah. But why would anyone want to bother doing so for the extra weight that gets added to the bike? You know, you're not going to have, you're not going to have the chance. Is with the scope system at least have the chance to run your own wheel set. You'd have to run scope's wheel set, I believe. Yeah, uh, or scope setup at I, least. I, so and, I think, yeah, I think with DSN they may have had it built into their. Dura Ace rims, but okay. you'd have to. So I think Scope probably will sell the hub separately, but then of course you've got to get a wheel built, and you know, obviously yeah. that that's less and less viable option for many people these days. I think that I think if there are performance gains to be had and benefits to be had for the everyday rider like myself, like you, Simon, even like you, Liam, I I don't. Um, I I just don't think it's worth the time and efforts, let alone the money. To, to to apply it to someone's bike, I don't, I I can't imagine anyone who would actually benefit enough to see it as a worthwhile. Endeavor. I mean, we certainly haven't seen these devices being used in any other races other than Paris Roubaix, have we? No. I mean, no one used it at the Tour of Flanders, or no. you know, no one just used it at the Tour de France. And I haven't seen it. I mean, you know, funnily enough, I haven't seen it being run in gravel events. Mm. Um, I think it's something that we you know we will keep an eye on. Um, the, you know, one of the things that I think surprises me about these about these devices. You know, including you know, we obviously mentioned the Scope Atmos, and and as you, as Liam said, there is another brand of them as well. Though the kind of manufacturer of that escapes me right now, uh, is is that they are UCI legal because you know the UCI said 
I think the, the press releases said that, you know, the UCI's press release said that they were legal because there were kind of no moving parts in them, which just seems impossible because obviously you were moving air from what, you know, you need valves. Yes. <laughs> yeah. By definition, if, if air is being moved in and out, there must be moving parts in order to like, you know, keep these systems airtight. And so I, I was kind of surprised that the, you know, the UCI has had a long and uh, glittering history, <laughs> shall we say, of, you know, seeing technological advances and saying, Men no. Pas merci. You know, yeah, non merci. Um, so I, I was kind of surprised that they that they were like fine with this, but they were. So that's fine. They have been used. I, you know, I suppose you know, they, they might change their opinion going forward. But yeah, I'm not... I think, you know, it'd be one of those things maybe if someone wins on them at Paris-Roubaix, mm-hmm. then maybe they'd get a, a kind of wider adoption. But I do think that Paris-Roubaix is such a kind of, you know, obviously we, the, the word unique is overused, but it is a unique event within professional cycling and even in cycling in general you know there aren't really you know other than gravel events now for punters like you say ash there aren't Mm. events such as paris-roubaix regularly so are you really going to buy this specific device that is only really applicable to an event such as paris-roubaix yeah (laughs) for that one one time in a decade you do the sportive yeah exactly you do the sportive and and even then like again again the money is just is is astronomical compared you know compared to the benefits you're going to be getting all right well ash what was one what was one of your tech highlights for road uh this year i think for me and maybe because i'm lucky enough to have been able to attend the launches of both it's the launch of the new specialized tarmac sl8 and the Roubaix SL8 as well. So kind of an SL8 naming double header to bring things in line um, uh, by Specialized. But um, I was able to, I was lucky enough to attend the launches of those two. And I think I think they're just important on the basis that when you look at when you look at the tarmac, at least it's it's the winningest bike of the past few years. You know, in terms of ultimate race wins, um, and Specialized have taken the SL7 and, and theoretically improved it. Um, I've now reviewed that bike as well, so that's on BikeRadar.com. And and you know, it it's just important because I think it it's you it's the bike that's held up as being usually the pinnacle of of design for you know all round race bike race bike design at the moment. Um, now, obviously, we're very critical about that, and we'll we'll we run other bikes past it as well. The you know the Ridley Falcon RS, for example, is extremely good. There are others out there that can certainly hold a candle to it. But I think yeah, it's it's just a, a very important bike in terms of what we're going to see on the we're gonna, on on you know on the world tour as well. Everyone's going to see it on the telly. Lots of teams riding specialized bikes. Um, so yeah, I think I think for me, the Tarmac is probably the single most important bike launch we've seen this year, even if it we kind of knew it was going to be before it had even happened. Um, so yeah, I mean, we saw like leaks, for example, about this bike beforehand. We, you know, we saw how popular that was and how much comment that sparked on, on, on the website. So I just think that's got to be important. Um, although having said that, you know, and I do agree with this, that, you know, not much has actually changed. The geometry stayed the same. Uh, they've, yeah, they, they've introduced the speed sniffer at the front. The, what they call the speed sniffer—it's an awful name, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, horrific. It's I mean, an awful I, name, you know, but, but I think Specialized is kind of one of those marketing things that Specialized does. That they, you know, they insert something, you know, kind of unusual or quirky, and then it gets everyone going, "What? What? You know, what? What?" And the, yeah. at least people it's are talking divisive. about it. Yeah, people yeah. Are talking. You know, Here we are. We're talking about it. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, it's. Um, you know, it, it might improve improve the you know the the SL7 very slightly, but you know it's not it's not a you know to use use the, the vernacular it's not a game changing change 
Um, if you already own an SL7, I don't recommend people go out and rush and buy the SL8. So, you know, it, it's it's just it's just an example of what maybe what can be done. You know, it's a very lightweight frame, for example, surprisingly lightweight frame. It's it, and it, and it rides extremely well as well. So, you know, I think I think it's just, it's just that bike that people will look at and say, okay, that's the yardstick. Now let's go and beat it. Yeah, and and you know, to to your point about you know not necessarily being a game changer, I think that's always the case with these kind of you know from one generation sure. to, to to the next. You know, mm-hmm. I don't think the kind of the move from the SL6 to the SL7 was Wasn't not a giant huge. leap. It was just yeah. kind of integrating the cables at the front end, taking the kind of Avenge inspired cockpit. So you know, they're all. You know, I think it's always the way, and you know, if you're sitting here with a tarmac SL4, then maybe the four to the eight seems like a bigger jump, right? Um, mm. The the Roubaix though, Liam, like I think it's been interesting to see they, you know, Specialized has kind of, you know, it, it was you know their endurance road bike, you know, designed for the kind of the likes of Paris Roubaix, obviously, but the kind of new one seems to be really kind of now leaning into more like all road and gravel. You know, do you have any thoughts on that? It's it's funny to see where the kind of endurance bike world is going now that it's not tied so closely to pro teams with being used for Paris-Roubaix, the the race that this bike is named after, giving it space for 40 mil tyres and kind of pointing it slightly towards gravel is an interesting way to go, I think, for Specialized because they've spent so many years building up that fleet of gravel offerings with a diverge and the crux and then you kind of bring your you know your where, yeah. endurance road bike where do you think this slots in with those guys because it's kind of like a slightly racier diverge isn't it without mm. the kind of obviously the, the diverge str now has that you know funky suspension back end i think it's it's probably going to be more aero than the crux i think we can judge that just by looking at the tube yeah, shape. the round tubes on the crux are not going to be you know the, the kind of diverge was said to be the previous diverge was said to be as aero as the tarmac sl6 wasn't it and what does the diverge provide over the roubaix sorry for... the previous roubaix was said to be as aero as the sl6 oh, okay. i said yeah. diverge <laughs> <laughs> what does the diverge provide to a gravel racer over the roubaix well you get quite a bit more tire clearance obviously so it's it's going to be a better adventure gravel bike but that roubaix if i was a, a mm. pro gravel racer doing the speeds that they do over the distances they do i'd be looking at the aero tube shapes and 40 mil tires is enough for a lot of quite relatively chunky gravel i think i think we're yeah, the Specialized was was a little bit coy on it when when I when I asked them about this whether whether the Roubaix was now be, just becoming a, a you know a, a, a light gravel bike or a gravel race bike, and they were quite unequivocal with me that they said no, it's not designed for that. It's still an endurance bike. It's still an all road endurance bike, but it's not designed specifically for gravel. But we're not going to stop any pros using it, mm. you know, or any gravel yeah. pros going out and racing it. And it's I think I think. That that specialized positioning, trying to pull it away from the two bikes we talked about, the Diverge STR and the and the Crux, trying to pull it away from those and keep it and keep it sort of, I guess, focused on endurance road endurance road categories being its priority. But the, the you know the new future shock system in the front in the front is very is clever. It's very effective. It softens the front end. The geometry is um, you know kind of halfway between what you'd see as a classical endurance bike and a, and a, and a gravel bike. And I think there's a, there's an element of hedging their bets here. Whereas you look at 
the kind of the other bike, the Giant Defy, you know, that's very much focused on the road. And so, you know, they, they've taken very different stances here in the way they're going to go about, you know, the endurance bike market. So it's it's an interesting one. And I, I just, yeah, I think I think Specialized are hedging their bets and seeing which way the wind's blowing and hoping that the Roubaix is sort of a big enough sail that it catch the wind. The disappointing thing for me about the new Roubaix is something that you see a little bit across the the bike industry in that, okay, so the S-Works version of this bike gets that really nice new tunable, uh, what is it, adjustable uh, future shock system. And then you go below that and you, you kind of get the one out of the old bike. And for me, that really smacks when you're still paying several, several, several thousand pounds worth of your hard-earned money for for a bike that doesn't actually feature the latest tech within the frame. But that's kind of where I would expect to get the full all singing, all dancing component. And and then your components that they'll save money on, I would say, should be the group set, the wheels, the tires. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I mean, certainly, you know, I, I, we can't really call it a tech highlight, but you know, rising bike prices has certainly been you know, a, a big kind of story this year. And, you know, kind of on that note of, you know, big stories, we we will have another podcast uh, coming soon on, you know, some of the top news stories from this year. So, you know, obviously there are other stories such as, yeah, bike prices, you know, Shimano crank arm recall, for example, things that we won't necessarily call uh, tech highlights, shall we say, <laughs> but nevertheless, very important stories. So, do subscribe to the Bike Radar podcast if you haven't already, because you won't want to miss that. Simon, what have been your kind of tech <laughs> highlights this year? So I think, you know, we, we've kind of already discussed a little bit like World Tour racing. And I, and I you know, I was going to kind of mention some of the stuff we saw at the Tour. You know, we've kind of seen wider tyres being used at the Tour. And, you know, is that something that we think we're going to keep seeing? But I think we've probably discussed that enough. And one of the most interesting things that kind of didn't get too much attention, actually, was uh, Team GB's updated Hope HBT Paris which we saw debut at the kind of World uh, Track Championships. Now, you know, the, the kind of Track World Championships went under the radar a bit because I think, you know, it's track and it's just not, it's not the most kind of popular sport in the world. But we actually saw some really, you know, out there bikes. You know, the, the, the Japanese team had a really interesting uh, kind of Hope HPT inspired bike with a, a wide fork. Uh, the French team had a new look track bike, which was really... Did that have the seat post with two prongs? That's right, yeah. So the the Team GB's Hope HBT Paris had uh, the two-pronged seat post, uh, you know, along with another a number of other upgrades, like kind of like humpback whale, sawtooth-inspired fork and stuff like that. So I think, you know, I'm kind of like, what was interesting about that is like, I, I, it's kind of throwing... For, basically, it was all the federations getting their kit used at the last possible date before mm -hmm. the Olympics next year. You know, because you have to have used it in advance. You can't just turn up to the Olympics with a load of secret kit anymore. That's just not not the way. So I think next year we'll we'll get much more focus on this stuff. And so, you know, some of the parts that maybe the teams only ran once just to get it ridden, but you didn't really want it to be seen by anyone. You know, next year at the Olympics they'll be using all the best kit all the time, and we'll really get to get a good look at this stuff. So I think that'll be really interesting because one of my tech predictions for this year, 2023, was that we were going to see more of this kind of stuff, you know, holistic aerodynamics, aerodynamic uh, devices on bikes that took the rider into account, as well as, you know, not just making the bike itself slippery. We did see that to a certain degree, you know, we saw the kind of the sweet protection Redeemer helmet uh, early on, which is kind of like a new generation POC Tempor. Um, 
but we didn't see any kind of brands, you know, Specialized didn't release Avenge, for example, haven't seen a new Cannondale System 6. We didn't see any brands taking inspiration from bikes such as the Ribble Ultra SLR with its kind of uh, bulbous winged handlebar that kind of breaks the airflow over the rider. Now, I wonder, you know, it might just be that that doing so isn't just not commercially viable, but I wonder if following the Olympics, we'll start to see more of those influences from track moving onto road. You know, it, like, yeah, Liam, you know, what, what do you think? Would you like to see an ultra wide leg fork make its way onto a road bike followed by a two prong seat post and a humpback whale inspired down? <laughs> shake this. The man with the AFOS is shaking his head. I, I wouldn't ride it myself, <laughs> but I appreciate that this is a, a free world mostly. And you, Simon, in your pursuit of every tiny marginal <laughs> gain, can go out and spend many, many thousands of pounds to go many, many one watts faster. Yeah, many, many fractions of a second faster yeah, yeah, around yeah. the Chew Lake time trial. Personally, for for regular riders, I don't think there's any point to any <laughs> of this. But uh, but yeah, I do like to see it at you know at the tour and and you know in the pro races because quite frankly, it gives us something to talk about. Yeah, it'd be good on YouTube. It would be great. It'll be great on a thumbnail. <laughs> In my opinion, I think I think it speaks kind of like to the to the how um, unprogressive the road cycling industry is generally, and bike design tends to be. I mean, I know we've we've seen the BMC T Machine R recently. That's got a bit of a flared fork vibe going on, um, and you start to see. It, but you're you're seeing millimeters, extra mm. millimeters here. We're not seeing something that's as out there as as the hope, you know, the track HBT, and I think. Paris, there you go, that's its full name. Yeah, it yeah. was the Hope HBT, and then they just added Paris on the end of it because basically it's, it's, the, it's kind of the, it was the, the Hope HBT. They've just added some updates to it for the Paris Olympics. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think, and I, I said that, I think I said this on some this time last year where I'm really hopeful that we will see a change in UCI race, re- regulations eventually where we'll be able to see these more outlandish bike designs. Um, and the problem is, is... It, it would seem to me that you can't you can't put a bike out there for everyone to you know for us to buy on mass if it's not being proven in in you know at sort of a high level or you know un- under a pro rider it it still still doesn't gel now you know logically speaking what works for a pro rider shouldn't work for us you know like aero spe- you know aero speed and aggressive positioning for a pro won't make you faster if you can't sit in that position for example and i just you know it's 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 still at the moment a, a requirement, I think, that it's you, you need to be able to prove it on, on the world stage first. I, I think that leads me nicely into uh, shamelessly plugging one of the best features that I've been involved with this year, which was the best value aero wind tunnel mm-hmm. testing that we did at Silverstone uh, that Simon was meant to go to. <laughs> But Simon had an illness that wouldn't wouldn't have been funny in a no, wind tunnel. No, probably wouldn't have been. Yeah, I just fell ill the night before and then couldn't go. And luck, I was very lucky that Liam stepped in because otherwise it would have been slightly awkward to cancel the wind tunnel time that we'd all paid for. But yeah, that was a, a really good one. I think it's one we'd had on the kind of slate for a while. We, you know, we because it's all very well sort of saying, you know, you just go out and drop ten grand on a Canyon Air Road or whatever. But actually, like, you know, I think what what most people are interested in, in you know, what's the best bang for buck in terms of error and where sh- where should I start? You know, like, I think we all probably, if you'd asked us all beforehand what's going to be the biggest upgrade, I think we would have all instinctively have said body position. Yeah. But it's the, the kind of magnitude 
you know, the kind of pounds per watt, considering changing your body position, you know, really doesn't cost that much. And even if you really wanted to spend as much as you could and you went and got a bike fit, mm. you know, it's it, how much is a bike fit, Ash? Like uh, 300 pounds, 400, between 500 pounds? Between 300 and 500 pounds, depending on who you go to, yeah. You know, so that's half the price of even a kind of like mid-range set of carbon wheels. Yeah. Now, the carbon wheels were very good performers in the wind tunnel, but they come at significant cost. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I thought it was really interesting to see in that test that the kind of aero road helmet, for example, performed very well compared to the vented helmet. Now, yeah. you know, there are compromises as to when and where you might want to wear that, if it's really hot where you live, that sort of stuff. But mm. knowing, you know, knowing that sort of stuff was really interesting. So, yeah, I thought that was really good. And, you know, we also went back to Silverstone to use their rolling resistance rig um, sort of partway through the year and, you know, for our kind of fast tyre group test. I think we'd just like to do more of that going forward, wouldn't we? I think so. I think so. It's always it's nice to have um, you know our finger on the pulse of 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 where the how these tires or how pieces of kit sort of you know rank, um, and so we can actually give that advice you know without repeating brand claims. It's always very important to us that we don't do that. Um, you know we are independent and we you know we do review every product that comes through the doors. You know that sees a review on the site and we review it properly. So you know. We don't like to say, well, a brand says this is faster, therefore it probably is. You know, that's not that that doesn't help anyone make a buying decision, and and that's what we're all about. So yes, hopefully we'll be able to do more next year. But the tire test was really interesting. I felt um, because you know tires are things that are very consumable. We go through an awful lot of them, for better or for worse, and you know they are also the, the probably one of the best all-round upgrades or cost-effective upgrades you can make to your bike. I'm getting lots of strong nods here. We're all nodding. (laughs) All nodding to that. And I think, you know, for us to be able to, yeah, we were comparing a certain kind of tyre, a sort of, you know, top-end, realistic top-end tyre, tubeless tyre that, you know, you can can buy. And they all performed well within their own parameters. And, And, you know, it's just, it's nice to be able to lend just a little bit more weight to the to our assessments of of which we felt was best because we know we didn't just rely upon the on the um you know the wind tunnel uh, excuse me the rolling resistance testing at silverstone we also you know tested them as we normally would and we gave our comments on ride feel and you know sometimes it did yeah, very tube, well on tubeless setup as well tubeless set super right? important yeah. right yeah. and you know but something some tires that perform very well in one aspect also performed you know, they performed decently well in another, but then the tables are turned with another tire. And then we're, we're then tasked with drawing that kind of average across the board and saying, okay, well, maybe this is the winner. Maybe this one over here is the winner. Or this one's better for you in this set- setup, for example. And we've got different favourites as well. That's that's also important to say. So I remember the winner of that test overall was the Pirelli P0 Race TLR, but it, it it's not the one that I personally would buy. But then that's 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 my decision, and that's what we all you know we all have we all make decisions like that, and we've all got our own preferences. Go on. Yeah, then. no, I agree. But I think you know, like the takeaway from that, obviously there were outliers, you know, mm. and there was a kind of you know a fastest overall and that stuff. But actually, like in general, the field was quite flat in yeah. terms of performance. Now, yes, you, you know, you might save three or four watts in total, you know, one or two watts per tire mm. by switching from a a tire to b tire, um, but you know would i take those watts if the tubeless setup was a real pain like no i um, wouldn't really because it, it, you know that that kind of like is not really a difference that you can detect whilst riding in the real world now you know if you're a racer and you're chasing every last watt then maybe you know maybe your assessment would be different but as mm-hmm. you said ash that's why you know everyone kind of like you know everyone has their personal preference everyone has their favorites but i think you know like it was interesting to come out of that test and and think you know we're in a really good spot there's been a lot of development in tubeless tires and mm. you know if you go for a 
you know, if you've got a favorite high-end model, it's kind of hard to come away with a um, poor tire, really. So that was that was impressive. And, um, you know, hopefully 2024 will bring even more brand new tires. We can go do it all again and <laughs> find out what's the, what's the next one. Let's move on to gravel. Now, I think, Liam, this is uh, an obvious one because you've got to go on a very nice trip for this launch. Which is your gravel highlight for 2023? Yes, I spent nine hours on a plane, oh, uh. <laughs> sat in economy, writing the news story for this one. Uh, Shimano's GRX launch. Uh, we kind of got three new group sets, sort of, like um, at two different price levels as well. So it, it, I was reading the press uh, release as I was on the plane and just confusing myself. So we've got new GRX, unbeatable, undroppable, and unstoppable. For me, that was the most surprising thing about the launch because Shimano never, never names its group sets, not something in no, the marketing. Yes, mm. you get a very dull a, number. A letter and number. So it's like RX810 or something, yeah. right? Although it still has those. They still have that, but they've given them friendlier names because not everyone is like us. Is it 820? It might be 820. I've forgotten yeah. by now. Anyway. The good things about these were there were plenty of one by and two by options to please many many gravel cyclists um and road cyclists too because the gravel stuff can be used on a road bike quite easily uh the two biker sets still start with an 11 tooth cog which was fabulous shows to me uh that shimano was actually listening to its users because a lot of um road riders or two by riders that would traditionally go for another two by option would have that kind of wheel set that would only take an 11 tooth cog but then there are one by options that start with a 10 tooth cog and offer really really good range um so lots to like about this and it uses a lot of stuff from the mountain bike side which was already available it made the rollout of the group set a lot faster i think that if you wanted to upgrade to it you could probably do so at a much reduced price than the rrp just because you could go out to you know, online retailers or down your local bike shop and get stuff that was already out at maybe a slight discount. Yeah, I think, you know, it was a good it was a good launch. I was slightly surprised that we didn't see a new DI2 group set and that has led to, you know, certainly the 11-speed DI2 group set still being specced on some brand new bikes at this time. Now, I, you know, it's kind of an interesting one with Shimano and DI2. You'd have to imagine that a new DI2 group set is in development, but I think, you know, I would have said that about their DI2 mountain bike group sets as well. Um, which haven't seen the light which, of day. For <laughs> which haven't appeared. So, you know, obviously it's been a tr it's been a tricky time with COVID recently and, you know, a, you know, supply of parts has been short. But I mean, yeah, we, we are expecting to see a DI2 group set, aren't we? Even if we've not had official confirmation. I think, I think they, they would, I think Shimano would be remiss if it didn't produce one. Uh, you know, we don't know for sure that it's coming, but when you look at its competitor, you know, its chief competitor being SRAM, you know, every, you know, mo most of the group sets it makes are electronic now. And I think, I think, you know, you, that cat's out the bag now. I don't think, I don't think there's any sort of... I mean, of, certainly f modern frames, a lot of them won't take mechanical gearing. Uh, some won't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or a lot of them won't. And, and you know, it has to be almost semi-wireless these days, you know, as well. And I think some frames will eventually be, well, I can only accept a wireless group set now rather than anything else. So, I, yeah, I, it's, it's, an, it's kind of like the open goal that they're not, they haven't put a goalkeeper in front of. 
in, in a funny sort of way. And I do think that I, I do think that the Shimano needs to sort of get on top of that in this coming year for sure. So what they told me was that seventy ish percent of uh, their gravel group set sales are mechanical. Hmm. So that's why they led. And the key word was led yeah. with yeah. mechanical. Yeah. So I, th- I think we can safely yeah. say that DI2 is coming. I'm not sure whether it was ready or I'm not sure whether the mountain bike stuff, an update there was ready. Yeah, I and think that's that's, that's probably why. the key thing, as you said, because obviously, you know, as as you kind of said earlier, the, the GRX now shares so many parts with the mountain mm. bike stuff that already existed. So I think Shimano is going to release both together the mountain bike and and that this would just be this is just my guess I, I don't know and i could just be wrong maybe there's a shimano marketing person listening and going oh it's not a bad idea <laughs> i should do that <laughs> that would be cheaper <laughs> but, but maybe they'll kind of release both around the same time and you know because yeah the sight of you know the likes of tom pidcock and um riding mechanical mountain bike group sets on their on their cross-country bikes i mean obviously it doesn't hold them back i, I assume but like it does seem odd, as you say, Ash, when you know, like SRAM has completely gone to electronic on so many of its road and mountain bike group sets. So, yeah, I suspect we will see those in 2024. I'd say it's a little, I you know, just to flip on its head slightly. I, I do think that it's a bit refreshing as well. It's not. It's good to see mechanical group sets still a performing at that top level when you see it under, say, Tom Pidcock or um, is it uh, uh, Ferron Prevost as well on, on on the women's side. And I think. It's it's great to see it performing, and you know I, I I've got no problem with it, and it's clear as you say it's clearly not holding them back. Um, but I also you know I lament that we don't have say on the road for example we don't have like an Altegra spec twelve speed me- mechanical drivetrain. For me that's that's kind of a hole that is is missing. But then you know Shimano has its own data and will and and will know whether or not that's or will have indications as to whether or not that's actually going to sell or not. As much as we'd yeah. love to say we want that, um, you know, it's for that person over there. And unfortunately that doesn't make a business. I think yeah, exactly. I think that's that's exactly right. I, I think I think the reason is is that, you know, and you know, Oscar, our colleague Oscar Huckle published a really good piece recently on the kind of you know, the truth about integrated cable routing on bikes, for example, when you talk to a few mechanics and, you know, just kind of got them to dish the dirt on uh, how, how tricky it can be. But and, and so I think, you know, manufacturers are increasingly designing bikes with clean front ends with all mm. the cables and brake hoses hidden. And that just doesn't suit mechanical group sets. And so there's kind of, you know, SRAM is making it easier for those bike manufacturers and you know Shimano is responding by releasing you know one I think you know to your point Liam about Shimano saying that 70% of GRX users are still on mechanical well that's because Shimano didn't offer cheaper yes, DI2 group sets much all you know I, and I wonder if you know now that on the roadside Shimano has you know essentially for all intents and purposes been mechanical group sets above 105 level you know, is that because seventy percent of sales were DI two at that level? Probably. Mm. You, know, I'm, you know, don't seventy percent. You know, I'm, I kind of, I'm just using that for comic effect there. But um, so I wonder if Shimano released, you know, a one hundred and five equivalent GRX DI two and an Altegra equivalent GRX DI two, and then maybe even a you know an XTR GRX equivalent DI two. Mm. You know, like if they had a more complete range similar to how SRAM does, maybe it would be different. Um, well, time will tell, won't it? Time will tell, hopefully, yeah. Um, Ash, what was your gravel highlight of 2023? Uh, mine was, it was not necessarily one specific bike launch, but I will pin it on one. Uh, 
uh, George, our editor-in-chief, uh, went out to uh, see the new Merida Silex. And what I liked about the Merida Silex was we had already clapped eyes on it in a sort of in a scoop in that he it was ridden to victory at the, in the World Champs by Matej Mohoric. And um, but when Merida launched it, we saw that it had more relaxed geometry than the predecessor, rather than a racier geometry you might expect from the likes of, you know, other 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 bikes like the Factor Ostro Gravel or BMC Cars, which are super aggressive um, and designed to be gravel speed machines. This wasn't designed to be gravel a gravel speed machine in the sense that we all kind of expect. Look, going after aero, going after you know sharp handling. It relaxed the handling. Aero looks to be a bit of an afterthought, although I'm sure it's there somewhere. But it looks to be a bit of an afterthought. It's got you know lovely wide tire clearances. It's it's you know it's it almost equally designed to be that adventure bike. And yet, obviously, Mohoric won on it, so that's one thing. It's not slow, and yet this and this bike is designed to be sort of what I would t- what I would term now maybe pure gravel. It's designed to be for use on gravel, and sort of don't forget about the road. You can ride on the road to get to your gravel points, but like. Don't expect to have a fantastic time on road necessarily, and I think, and I I think that that's kind of indicative of where things will go. I've said I've said so in my sort of trends article on bikeradar.com, which you can read either soon or I can't remember exactly when it goes out, but it'll either be soon or it's just gone out. And um, I just think I think you know aero and those aggressive race bikes that we see on on the gravel kind of circuit. Uh, will be a thing of the past before long. I just think they're too niche and they're too specialised. And actually, we've just proven that you can win, you know, at least Matej Mohoric has just proven you can win on a bike that's a bit more relaxed. Yes, and if for you, me, that's that's a good thing. If you too have incredible descending skills and world tour legs, you can win anything. <laughs> well, of course, of course. You know, that no one's saying that, you know, Mohoric isn't a world-class rider and, and it's down to him that he's won. Absolutely, but it what it, you know it's not because he's riding some kind of prototype superbike that's that's designed to be the fastest ever out there. Is Merida doesn't approach the fastest kind of conversation or you know all that much? Yeah, like bike. in terms of wind tunnel. Yes, exactly, or, whatever. or a, a, anything at all. And, and for me, that's you know that's that's very forward thinking. Yeah, I've, I've obviously, yeah, it, it, it was really interesting, as you say. You know when when Merida launched it and said, oh, this isn't really a gravel race bike, I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting that you've just won the gravel world championships, but you're saying this is not a race bike. I do, you know, obviously with Mohoric's specific setup, I do think he, because of the kind of, you know, uh, geometry being higher at the front and everything, he did seem to run, I think I'm right in saying he ran a smaller frame with a very long stem and quite a narrow handlebar. Of course, um, you know, as, as, so, as is the traditional pro way. Yeah, you know. exactly. It was still a kind of non, a non-stock build, as we should say. But I think you are right that they are, there are certainly increasingly diverging design um, philosophies on this, you know, in, in a way that if we don't see on the road at all, you know, road bike geometry is very settled, mm. you know, other than seat tube angles getting slightly uh, steeper and people switching from setback to inline seat post, which has, you know, been a blessing in my opinion. But other than that, you know, road bike geometry is very settled. Whereas, yeah, with gravel bikes, certainly, as you say, we have you know, basically road bikes with aero road bikes with wide, t- with wide tire clearances, such as the Factor Ostro Gravel or BMC Caius. Uh, but then, yeah, we have other bikes such as the yeah the new new Merida Silex, which are more kind of like you know, I mean, it's an overused term. They're more mountain bike inspired, aren't they? With slacker front ends, yeah, you know, steep seat tube angles, and they're really designed for kind of like stability control at you know high speeds on 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 rough off road stuff. Now, 
you know, as as with anything, you know, what's the fastest gravel bike? The answer is, you know, it's like with anything, it's always going to be, it depends. But it's an interesting choice because, yeah, we have reviewed, you know, the Factor Ostra gravel, we have reviewed the BMC Caius, and I'm sure on the right course, you know, very light gravel, with lots of road sections in between, I'm sure they're rapid. Yeah. But, you know, it, on, you know, on the kind of courses we're seeing, such as Unbound and things like that, where you know it, it's it's really off-road yes. you are off you are officially off-road it's not just kind of like a broken road you are you are long long in long in the kind of you know the mud i was gonna say the long grass but the mud then you know yeah exactly maybe, maybe you need something which is more stable on on rutted ground so yeah not to put words in his mouth you know warren's you know conspicuous by his absence today but he can't be with us today unfortunately but he you know has reviewed the bmc and the factor and um you know and and his overall take on on gravel bikes is certainly one that looks more towards the progressive and see you know the versatility of gravel is what makes it fun and to, to most people and maybe brands are cottoning onto that a little bit that they can't just create a you know a, a road bike light sort of race bike gravel bike and say here you go off go off road on that I, I don't think that's landing as strongly as some brands hoped it might um, unless they're you know their their brand DNA such as that you know. BMC factor is is steeped in racing, you know that's where you're going to go initially. But actually, those those bigger brands such as Merida, you know, a massive brand that can can afford to take not a risk, but can can afford to do things slightly differently, has done so here. And I think I think you know, well, again, it's always a time will tell situation. But if if it does very well, it could herald you know a, a kind of a new beginning for gravel. Yeah, I was just going to say. My favorite thing about this launch was Merida calling the old version of this bikes. The looks were challenging, which yeah. was the understatement of the year. And, I, that and I agree with them. Terrible. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, talking of terrible looking things, that, that, uh, my great pleasure, you know, I'm, I'm kind of very, I'm, I'm kind of dipping my toes more into gravel next year, but I don't know too much about it. So my great pleasure from this year was that Canyon finally binned the hover bar. <laughs> Were they making you buy it, Simon? No, they weren't. But I, forced? but I had to look at it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whenever anyone talked about Canyon gravel bikes, I had to look at it, and that that was very upsetting, Liam. So yeah, we we first spotted the new Canyon Grail at Unbound in June, before ahead of an official launch in October. And yes, the big news was that the hover bar uh, is no more, which I'm sure you know most people are probably pretty happy about. To be honest, I think the kind of response to that has generally been positive. You know, obviously, we've just had a, a little bit of a chat about you know what the kind of gravel bike design. I think for for a lot of people, the kind of popularity of this bike is is going to be down to the fact that it is kind of like an ultimate, but with wider tires. Mm. And now, whether that's kind of like progressive enough, you know, that that's that's an, obviously an argument that you know we can, we can all have. But I think for a lot of roadies going to gravel, this is going to be a very a very kind of popular formula. Yeah, th this is where this bike sits. Like Canyon has the Grizzle, which is its rugged adventure bike. That's the one that you're going to be able to fit 50-something millimeter tires onto and ride down a dry stream bed or whatever you want to do. This bike is designed for racing and fast gravel riding. So naturally, it is going to come with those, you know, smaller tire clearances but one of the benefits to that is that you can fit real big chain rings like a 5236 onto this, which a lot of roadies do want because I think for a lot of people, especially, you know, we live in the UK, it's nothing 
here, like you know, I rode in Portland, Oregon for GRX launch. Over there, you can go and and just ride just gravel, and that's amazing. But here, you have to string together a load of sections with roads. So, you know, I, I see this being an incredibly popular gravel bike. It's certainly, one that people could dip their toes into, and I think you you called it is it you know basically a gravel esque ultimate. Yeah, but you know we saw we saw some riders riding ultimates on. I believe not this year. The year before, yeah, I was the, riding ultimates. You know, in with as much you know clearance as as much tire width as they could possibly manage, and we saw pros doing that. And it's it's entirely possible that it was a that was to test the principle. And so you know, te- you know, you can test that. You can test that principle and then apply it, apply some extra sort of, sort of development to to the Grail. Then, based on the fact that they enjoyed riding the ultimate so much. I'll tell you what, that. That uh, Matthew Vanderpol, he caused an argument, didn't he, on on the internet? Did he? He did. When he rode a road bike for the Gravel World Championships, <laughs> oh, well, it yeah. wasn't in the spirit of gravel, Ash. Oh, well, the spirit well, of gravel. Well, I think that that Gravel World Championships, uh, shall we say, was not as it gravel. It wasn't gravelly. It enough, wasn't as was gravel it? as, uh, you know, a Gravel World Championships perhaps could have been. Well, then, um, But I think this are. year's one, you know, I think in fairness, this year's one was more gravelly, wasn't it? It was. Um, and that was perhaps reflected in the winning bike. Mm. I mean, it's interesting as well. I mean, Canyon it tends to have a bit of a reputation through its direct sales model to create bikes that are a little bit cheaper, you know, pound for pound versus others on the same, you know, same sort of spec. Um, like I, our own Mister Thrifty, Mister Jack Luke, did uh, give it a five star rating, you know, and that's the CFR Di two spec, you know, the top top bike. You know, of course, we're looking at its racy potential there and, and how fast and entertaining it is to ride because obviously it's the top spec build. But at the same time, it, it takes it takes a lot to get a five-star review out of us. So uh, it certainly yeah. takes a lot to get one out of Jack. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, you know, obviously brands love to send us the top spec ones. Uh, I think, you know, I'll be more interested to see how, a bit like with, you know, your ultimate mm-hmm. reviews from this year, Ash, I will be more interested to see how it kind of works out in the mid-range. Yes. I think that's where more people will be shopping. You know, the CFR is nice, but, you know, I, I would say most people don't need to be looking at that top spec carbon frame and group set, so. No, and Canyon Canyon is on record with me as being quite <clears throat> quite clear that, you know, it's it's the SLX range that kind of offers that. It, of course, it, 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 it's in its interest to say this, but, like, it, it tends to claim it to be the best balance of bang for buck, the SLX, like right in the middle of it. And actually, I found when I t- tested the Ultimate, for example, that was the case there. But we'll see if that translates to the Grail. All right. Well, so many amazing highlights this year. And, of course, we couldn't talk about them all. If you have a tech highlight mm. from 2023 that appeared on bikeradar.com, then please do send us an email. We'd love to know what you enjoyed this year. And as I said earlier in this podcast, don't forget to subscribe to the Bike Radar podcast because we have lots more to talk about from 2023. And like I said, we'll be doing a top news stories one coming very, very soon. We should talk mm. about the kind of, I don't want to say low lights because that feels a bit mean, but you know, with Shimano crank recall, a few other things like that. And of course, we have already covered these on the podcast. So if you can't wait, Ooh. then just search our archive and you can listen to those where they are in your, wherever you get your podcasts. But yeah, all it leads me to say is thank you very much, Liam. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ash. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for listening. As I said, if you do have any thoughts or feedback, do send us an email at podcast at bikeradar.com. Otherwise, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you've not done so already, please subscribe and share with your friends or leave us a rating if you've enjoyed this episode. 